Welcome to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association provides creative opportunities for all ages. Get creative with us at the Mesquite Fine Arts Center, 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartscenter.com or on Facebook, The Art Box. It's raining here and, and cold, um, and we, we had a couple groups out today, uh, myself kind of closer into Tucson, and then uh, another uh, several volunteers out at Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument, where I'm sure you've been reading in the news about the... Uh, you know situation there yeah and that and that's where we saw one of your trucks so that was um that was how i got the idea and i took the picture of the side and i came back and told linda 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 Linda, we've got to interview humane borders (laughs) and there was a a couple friends of mine who were um they're big hikers and they saw our pictures from ajo and oregon pipe and they went down there for two nights they stayed five haven't mentioned anything about the borders but they love they love the town and oh yeah because you know, i want to i want to move there and i'll volunteer for you but i don't think my wife's gonna let me move there, so. <laughs> oh you know we can take volunteers even we have people who come from out of state and will volunteer for one or two weeks um sometimes people might volunteer for the summer is when we really need the help because a lot of the snowbirds are gone and and we're a little uh, light on volunteers and and that's when of course it's more deadly out there so uh, but we do get people who will volunteer sometimes in the summer they'll come down because they know we need the extra hand and uh, we're pretty well covered during the rest of the year, um, but it is a, a remarkable experience if you've you know never had that opportunity. I recommend that everyone see it with their own eyes. Good recommendation. Laurie, for our listeners, can you tell us a brief description of what you do if we can start at the beginning? Tell us a little bit about Humane Borders, how it started, and what its mission is. Sure. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. Humane Borders was founded in the year 2000, addressing a dire need in Arizona because we saw that there were literally thousands of people dying right in our own backyard. Uh, We work with the Pima County Medical Examiner and known deaths are now topping over 4,100 for uh, since the year 2000. So obviously a, a critical situation and regardless of how people feel politically about the border and immigration, it's just not right that we're having men, women and children dying in our in our own backyard, uh, often because they don't have enough water, uh, exposure to both heat and cold or trauma. And uh, many migrants are making this dangerous journey without any real idea uh, about what what is happening. So our mission is to first we we have uh, water runs we call them or routes throughout uh, the borderlands. Um, our barrels can we have 55 gallon barrels blue, uh, the universal symbol for water. We put blue flags out and these are in areas where we've noticed where we've had a lot of recent deaths or signs of recent activity. So the idea is to save lives, keep it apolitical, but also to work to co-create a more just and humane border. You were talking about volunteers. About how many volunteers do you have in your organization? 
Yes, uh, we have hundreds of supporters and donors. I would say the the core team is uh, we're fairly small but mighty. Uh, mm-hmm. Several dozen active volunteers who are out day in and day out, you know, doing water runs, um, checking to make sure the water, you know, is still safe to drink, replenishing water in very remote and often rugged areas. And in recent months, we've been deploying resources more right along the border wall where we've seen some of these uh, surges of asylum seekers. You mentioned the map or the deaths. You mentioned 4,100 known deaths and I looked at the map, there are many unknown deaths, too. What surprised me was, of course, you would expect a lot to die of lack of water or hypothermia, but there were some deaths of gunshot wounds and blunt force trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a surprise. Would, Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Well, it's really an interesting experience to go into the the interactive death maps Mm -hmm. and uh, you'll see a a sea of red dots. Each one of these dots represents where one or more migrants have perished, unfortunately. And you can click on that dot and, and learn about what's known about the victim. Was it a man, woman or child, approximate age? If there is an identity and you're correct that many remain unidentified. Um, the name will be listed, nationality, uh, and if, if known, uh, cause of death. And yes, there are, are some cases where tra- there's been trauma, whether it's, you know, infighting within the group or, you know, someone who came across them, you know, uh, we don't know. Um, in some of these cases, we'll never know. But it is important that these, it's actually 4,159 known deaths that this may be the tip of the iceberg. There are many, many others who go missing and are never found. Um, it's very, again, hostile terrain. Remains are often scattered by, by birds or animals. So it, it's uh, we suspect the actual number who've perished, and this is only in the Arizona uh, area, only in Arizona is much higher. Wow. Laura, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Lord, growing up, what what drove you into this? Yes, I grew up in Colorado and I worked in uh, radio news for many years. And I first became aware of white supremacist groups when a talk show host uh, that I worked with named Alan Berg, who was Jewish, was assassinated by a splinter group of the Aryan Nations, a group from northern Idaho. Um, I had no idea that there was such a thing as white supremacist groups in, in you know, the 1980s in the U.S. Um, thought we had made, you know, more strides than that in terms of racial justice. So it was an eye-opening experience for me. And since then, I've been very interested in the subject. And when I would uh, come to Southern Arizona, I once owned property along the border and would see evidence of, of migrants. And on one occasion, saw a group uh, traveling about, there are about 20 people, men, women, and children fleeing in a snowstorm across the road. Uh, and it really stayed with me that what was it that drove these people to be out in such horrible conditions and they were scared of me. Um, you know, why is this happening? Uh, why are people voluntarily leaving their homes and, and coming to, to the U.S.? And when I became a permanent resident of Arizona and Tucson, I, I learned of all of these deaths that had happened 
here. And once you, you know, you can't unknow what's happening. I put in my application the next day for Humane Borders, and I've been a volunteer for about two years now. Are the locals supportive of the mission? Or I'm sure it's like every community, the people have varying attitudes and ideas. But as a whole, would you say that your community is mostly supportive of what Humane Borders does? Yes. Tucson, by and large, is is a multicultural city. Many people here have family on both sides of the border, many Spanish speakers. Um, We also have the support of the Pima County uh, commissioners, and all of our uh, stations are permitted by local government officials, so very much have uh, support. Is it unanimous? No. But when I go to a, a gas station to fill up and I have the Humane Borders water truck, I've been surprised so many times by people who've come up just to say thank you. Oh, you're the people that put water out in the desert so people don't die. Pretty hard to argue with that, regardless of what your politics are. Right. Um, but there are a very small minority of people who have harassed us, uh, have vandalized our water stations. Unfortunately, um, we're well aware of who they are. They tend to kind of uh, float in and float out of the area, but they are growing in numbers and they are of concern. Yes, I think I've heard that some of your uh, mortar barrels have been shot. That's correct. Just since I've been a volunteer, we've had stations that have been, barrels have been shot. Sometimes the spigot will be kicked off and the barrel will be drained. We've had barrels that have been stabbed. Um, Another was vandalized uh, over the summer with graffiti and the skull and crossbones saying that the water was dangerous to drink and it was, you know, muy mal, peligroso, you know, don't drink. Um, and we've had barrels just taken, drained, and, and, and stolen. Um, and we have had several meetings with local law enforcement who are aware. And if we can you know, catch these people, they will be prosecuted. How do you work with uh, the National Park Service? And I assume there must be some Bureau land management land there as well. Yeah, we have a representative who is an uh, inter- intermediary with uh, local, state, national uh, government officials. So um, we enjoy very good relationships and support. Uh, most people, you know, don't want a situation where uh, you have someone who's, God forbid, has perished on, on your property. You know, again, it takes a pretty uh, cold-minded human being to think that that's okay. Yeah, I, I guess just a comment there. I think if they were to see the result of somebody dying in the desert, maybe that would turn their cold heart warm. But then again, maybe not. It's hard to say. I'm not really sure what's going through people's minds here. I think it's uh, some people, it's easy to dehumanize people and think of them as, well, they don't look like me or they don't speak my language. But when you are there in person and you see their faces and their that they're scared, you see the gratitude, you see their their children, um, they're just like we are. And it's awfully hard to turn your back on someone and say, oh, I'm not going to give you water or shelter or food. These are just basic necessities that that we all need to survive. And I was certainly raised to believe that, that you reach out and help your fellow human beings. You don't turn your back. 
having been down and we just got back from Oregon pipe and you know we certainly um, saw your water barrels out there and that's a fairly analog solution if you will so is humane borders leveraging technology at all to help or is is there such a thing in terms of water delivery um, it's been an interesting experiment at Oregon pipe because barrels are traditionally what we've used um, however we we learned that people coming in sometimes didn't have a way to carry water we assume that people are prepared to be in the desert and they have the right footwear and clothing and a hat and uh, but they were showing up in in flip-flops and and crocs and and shorts without hats or any sun protection or even a water bottle. So for time, we were putting out uh, plastic water bottles, which we don't like to do. It's not environmentally friendly. And then we stumbled across biodegradable cups uh, that we have been using now. And that seems to be a good solution. Yeah, I think um, I think I remember seeing some there. Yes. And what's what's really lovely is oftentimes when we come across groups of migrants and there's been a discarded cup over here, a bottle over there, we'll ask everyone to help us clean them up and everyone will pick them up. And we have uh, trash receptacles near our water stations. There's also a contractor that comes in and, and helps with, um, you know, any type of belongings that have been left behind, et cetera, because people are limited in what they can take with them by the border patrol so you will see blankets um, left behind and we want to make sure that we leave uh, the desert as, as, as pristine and clean as it as it always has been so and it, it is wonderful to see migrants helping one another recently we had a nurse from Senegal who pitched right in and helped with uh, patching up blisters and and so forth so there is a lot of community spirit that's happening out there yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, when you see a bunch of people walking in the line, it's just not a bunch of individuals. That's yeah, that yeah, that there's some it. humanity among those mm-hmm. who who are in much need of humanity. Yeah, but technology of uh, you know, we we're using technology for navigation out there. I I use a a popular app to map my routes and share that with other drivers. I have a Garmin GPS uh, where I can communicate in an emergency with a dispatcher, even with no cell service in the area. So we are adapting and, and moving forward with uh, with digital technology. Do you know when your water is getting low um, through technology or is that strictly a visit? That's a visit. Um, we need to test the water, too, especially in the summer months. We want to switch out the water in the barrels about once a month because you can get greater some al- algae buildup. So we have a, a TDS uh, tester, it's called, for total dissolved solids. We can check, making sure the water's still safe to drink, uh, and we'll switch it out on a regular basis and, and top them off as needed. A typical water run is four to up to eight stations. So each one of them is checked on a regular basis, typically uh, two or three times a month, uh, just to make sure that they have been replenished, that flags, there are blue flags that mark our station, hasn't been blown down in a a wind gust or that it hasn't been vandalized. Um, So I'm not sure that we have any digital technology yet that would allow us to do that all remotely. I've noticed a lot of tents too, and and that's typically at least I know when we put a tent up for a nonprofit here, 
it always blows over. <laughs> so you've got yours. <laughs> you've got yours batting down pretty good. Yes, we learned that lesson over the summer. We'd have the pop-up tents that you often see at, at, at art shows, for example, and uh, and those were just tossed around like like kids' toys in the in the monsoon uh, heavy storms that we have. So. Um, it, it's harsh conditions out there. We've learned how to better reinforce them. Uh, the shelters have worked great for us uh, during the rain that we're having uh, today. Uh, people definitely are using them just to stay warm and dry because hypothermia is definitely a concern right now. Uh, but in the summer months, Oregon pipe has very little natural shade except for late in the day uh, on the uh, north side of the border wall, for example. You'll see people huddled uh, up against the wall or this makes me cringe. <laughs> people were sometimes tossing blankets over choya cacti and mm. using that as a makeshift shelter. But anyone who's familiar with the desert knows that there's all these spines and small pieces of choya on the ground underneath and once you get those cactus spines embedded in your skin they're very hard to remove yes you yes. always i always carry a comb with me when i'm hiking oh yes that's how we do it too <laughs> inevitably i i sit on a landmine to get a good picture yeah. of choya right uh so with very little natural shade we're doing what we can to provide it and we'll also line blankets underneath the shelters so during the hot months, people will have at least a place to lay down in the shade. Lori, have you worked with uh, any of the migrants at length to get to hear their stories of what brought them up here and their journeys? Could you, if so, could you tell us a little bit about that? You know, the the stories are as varied as the the people who come across. I recently had an encounter with a a, a mom from Sasabe. Mexico, just over the, the border on the other side of, of Arizona, where there's been serious cartel violence happening. Um, houses were being burned down, people were being stopped and tortured. She was a nurse who feared that she was going to be kidnapped and and fled uh, across the, the border through um, a cut bollard in, in the wall. And these people were Coming in on wheelchair, I saw a woman on crutches uh, with small children, and they were fearing for their lives. Um, and, and fortunately, they certainly had a strong case for, for credible fear. And, uh, and most of those people of this town of about 2,500 have been granted temporary asylum. Right now, the that area is still, unfortunately, in the hands of the cartel, and there was just a travel advisory issued um, that U.S. citizens should not be traveling in that part of uh, Sonora, Mexico. How does Humane Borders raise awareness about its mission and the issues that it addresses? That's a great question. You know, there's certainly a lot of propaganda on the far right about the border, and we're so busy out there doing the work that it's hard to find the time to post and, and talk about what we do. But that's a, a strong commitment from me that I, I've worked in communications and journalism. So I uh, started an Instagram account for Humane Borders. We welcome people to follow it. I try to post uh, as often as we're out in the field, as often as we can about what's happening. And people are welcome to go to our website, humaneborders.org, uh, look at the death maps and, and read about 
uh, if you're interested in volunteering or donating, we can always use more help because, you know, volunteers come and go. The situation hasn't really changed. If anything, the numbers have increased in, in recent months. So those are ways that you can stay up with what we're doing. Um, I'm also committed to being accessible to media if people want to talk to us about the work that we're doing and what it's was what it's really like on the front lines at the border. I'm happy to, to, to share that experience. We have journalists who ride along with us. Student groups will often come out with us and volunteer and ask a lot of questions on water runs. And, and then there's word of mouth. Everyone who comes out with us and sees with their own eyes what's happening, that this is a humanitarian crisis. It's not a war zone. The vast majority of these people are coming through and surrendering so that they can legally claim asylum. It is their lawful right to do. To your question earlier, the vast majority are fleeing violence, discrimination, extreme poverty. They are just fighting to survive. And any of us would do the same thing if it were happening to us or our families and our loved ones. Oh, I totally understand. How do the migrants coming from other countries, how do they get to the border? What's the main way that they get up there? Because I'm just thinking if somebody's really poor, how do they do that? Yeah, great question. I think there's all different ways that people find their way into first into Mexico. Sometimes we'll find discarded bus tickets, plane tickets, people's passports are sometimes, you know, left behind. We can see who's been through and all the different parts of the world um, where they come from. Some of them have shared with us that it's been a journey of many months, better part of a year to get there. Of course, you've read the stories about the Darien Gap where a lot of people are coming through and how dangerous that can be. And the fact that there's little babies, you know, coming through in backpacks and on slings through that area. But again, these are people who are desperate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there is a saying that people want a better life, but from what I've seen, these people want a life. They, They want to survive. I'm concerned that the problem is only going to get worse Um, with unrest, climate change, and with increasing levels of of poverty in the world. So I would love to see us spending more time looking at addressing some of the sources of why people want to leave home. Most of us don't want to leave home. Home is where we grew up. That's where our family is. That's where our friends are. Uh, What is it that forces people to want to leave? And let's look more at that And also, rather than wasting money on a wall that has already been proven to be ineffective, let's channel those resources into more help and speedier processing for asylum seekers so we can get them sooner before, um, you know, a, a judge and and decide, okay, is this person have a credible claim? Should they be able to remain in the country and and not have these long uh, delays for people to, to know their fate? How long does it usually take for somebody to know their fate, as you say? This isn't my area of expertise, okay. but I understand it can take years. And sometimes people are put in detention for months uh, and, and even years. So We need a a speedier, you know, less chaotic uh, process uh, for that. We also need a more robust worker program. Our economy would collapse if it weren't for 
immigrants and, and migrants. They do a lot of the jobs that, that many of us don't want to do. And uh, there's been some very interesting research about what immigrants and, and migrants contribute to the economy. And it's much more than what they, they would take out, what the costs are. So when people come and say, well, it's costing this much money, but look at what these people are able to contribute and put back into the economy. That's what we need to focus on. I know there's an effort right now to shorten the timeline for work permits. Oh. Shorten the timeline in uh, terms for, of... For the of migrants the, to get their work permits. Yes. That makes a lot of sense to me, and it helps our economy. Um, many of us have experienced what happens when there's a, a worker shortage. This has certainly been a, a challenge here in the United States the last couple of years mm-hmm. uh, since the, the pandemic. And I, I always shake my head when I hear, oh, I can't get enough workers for this restaurant or I live in Arizona and my uh, a landscaper told me that he couldn't get enough workers. And yet I see every day people along the border who would be so grateful to have a, a low wage job in which they can be productive and contributing to society. They don't want to come in and just go, you know, on the dole. They want to work and they're excellent workers. So I, I really think that we need to reframe the narrative this is not an invasion. These are not people who are lazy and unmotivated. Look, they've come from all areas of the world just to come here and be part of our community. And uh, and we need to, to give them an opportunity to do so. Yeah, Lori, I look at uh, what you guys are taking on right now. It's either last gasp help, which is the water, or you help discover the people who are here too late. So knowing that and you know, knowing what you're doing now, what you're able to do now, what are the goals and aspirations of Humane Borders in the coming years? I don't think that's really going to change. We may adapt to the evolving circumstances, and it's always changing, but the Fundamentally, it's to save people from dying a horrible death uh, in the desert, oftentimes alone. The medical examiner gives a, a talk that's very sobering about what it's like to die when you don't have water. It's not pretty. And and I think if more people were aware of what the effects were, people say, well, they deserve it. You know, they came across illegally. Well, do people deserve the death sentence for what's essentially the equivalent of a misdemeanor? Does, does a small child who's three years old deserve to die because they don't have water? So fundamentally to ensure that there's water so we can at least give people the most basic thing they need to survive next to air is is water clean safe drinking water we don't know how many lives have been saved but beyond that a big part of our role is to to bear witness to what's happening to hold uh, border patrol and other government officials accountable for their actions and to communicate to the world what we're seeing and and what the truth is countering all of the misinformation and the propaganda that's happening but talking about these people as human beings don't believe the rhetoric about them being criminals and thugs and, and rapists it's it's a smaller percentage than what you would find among native born US citizens uh, and and the, again, these are people who, for the most part, want to come and be contributing members of society. So reframing the, the narrative uh, about immigration and, and migration, which human beings have been doing ever since we could walk upright.
Yes. How, how does Humane Borders collaborate with other organizations, both nationally and since you're just on one side of the border internationally, to amplify your impact? Yeah, great question. Um, that's critical. Uh, there, There is no competition among humanitarian organizations. We uh, communicate on a daily basis through various means, sharing information about what's happening. We share resources. If one group says we need more blankets out at the Sasabe area because we've got some refugees coming over. Everyone will rally, you know, to get blankets or socks or granola bars or, or what's needed. So we also uh, launched an effort over the summer to post in the various migrant shelters on the Mexico side of the border posters with the death maps showing what the risks are in coming across. So the people are fully informed if they make that choice to make that dangerous journey, because oftentimes the smugglers aren't telling the truth, shockingly, uh, to their clients. They will say, okay, we're just going to drop you here. And then you walk, you know, 10 minutes and there'll be a bus, you know, with air conditioning, you know, waiting for you to pick you up. Well, you know, we've had people say that that's what they were told. And they're they're bringing suitcases <laughs> over on wheels and they're walking in high heels uh, or, like I said earlier, wearing flip-flops or, or Crocs. And, um, and they may find themselves stuck out there for days with no shelter, no food, no water, and uh, it could be a, a rapidly become a very dangerous uh, situation. So that's an important part of, of what we do. We're all meeting next month for a conference in Ajo to talk about how we can work better together. There are occasionally even meetings where these non-government organizations will meet with Border Patrol and it'll be a listening session where we share our concerns about what they can be doing better on their end and how how can we help you. You know, for the most part at Organ Pipe, we've worked arm in arm with border agents, but there have been some who have refused to give us access to people to give them water to give them food or who have reacted angrily when we have said this person needs immediate medical attention, you need to get them transported right now to a hospital. So I would like to think those are the exceptions, not the rule, but we still have some work to do. And every organization has people who are, are, are good and have good intentions and then a few bad apples. So again, we're going to be there to, to hold them accountable and, and work with other humanitarian groups to call out bad behavior and to let let Border Patrol know when when and, and where they're falling short. Do you have any partnerships with other nonprofits that would be on the other side of the border? Uh, yes, um, we do. We work with uh, several organizations that work out of shelters on the uh, Sonora uh, side of the border. We uh, provide donations to them. Many of our volunteers go visit, uh, see what is needed there. That's not our primary focus, but um, we do work very closely with organizations that are active on the, the Mexico side of the border. I personally went to a couple of shelters in Sonoita just to see what the need is. You know, at this point, we're not bringing water over the border, although we were prior to the cartel violence. But yes, there are other ways that we can help. And and, and I mentioned Sasabe earlier, prior to the violence, we were bringing uh, donations, food, clothing, baby food, pet food across the border to help with uh, a, a small CASA in, uh, in Sasabe 
where uh, migrants would be not stay overnight, but they would at least get a hot meal and a shower after being deported, oftentimes with nothing. Their, their money's been taken, they have no documents, and they're basically starting over. So we were helping in that regard as well. That's a good point to bring up, that their needs don't stop just because they're deported. That's true. Um, in many cases, before they even get across the border, we hear stories of people who've been robbed and everything's been taken from them or they've been beaten up or, or raped. So and then they come over and, and then we hear stories about the Border Patrol, you know, made them get rid of all of their belongings except for what you would fit in a gallon Ziploc bag. So there are times when people are sent back across with nothing. Uh, and, and that that is a concern because there aren't enough resources in Mexico either to deal with a lot of these people. So will they attempt to come back over again? Will they give up? Or will they just end up as refugees in northern Mexico, which has become a huge problem? One of the shelters that I visited, there were a lot of men who had lived most of their lives in the U.S., uh, undocumented and had been deported, but their entire life, their family, their livelihood is is in the U.S. Uh, but they 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 don't have the stamina to try to cross over again, so they're stuck um, living out their lives in northern Mexico. You know, one of the things that that you know certainly isn't in your purview, but I had always wondered if indeed, because there's there's a lot of people on the way. I mean, let's face it, you know, people people are queued up through several countries on their way up here. And I've just always wondered if they stopped, if they said, okay, the border's closed, there's going to be a, a bunch of humans who are going to run up to this wall and that's it. They're going to have to stay there. So I'm just wondering, are there resources on the other side of the border that could handle that? Because that would be a true humanitarian crisis. Well, let, let me stop you there. The, they don't stop at the wall. And, and that's the problem. They The wall is easy to breach. Um, you've seen videos, I'm sure, of people with uh, Build me a 15-foot wall and I'll get a 16-foot ladder. They climb it. There have been an astonishing number of people who've been killed or uh, seriously injured falling while trying to, to climb the wall. They tunnel under the wall. Mother Nature uh, knocks down the wall when we have the major floods. And I've seen several sections of the wall that was built during the previous administration that are already being repaired because of erosion. It's very easy for a smuggler with a, a saw that you can buy at Home Depot and a generator, and I've seen this, to go on the Mexico side of the border and just simply cut the bottom of a bollard it swings open and people climb through. Yeah, and, and um, we, we, so. watched, we watched that when we were down there. Yeah. My question was more of a, if indeed it would stop and there was a lot of people on the Mexico side, um, mm -hmm. what would happen? Is there sufficient resources there or would there be a no. huge crisis? It would be, it already is a huge crisis, quite honestly. The, the shelters right now in northern Mexico are bursting at the seams. Mexico has a arm of government called Grupos Beta that is uh, government funded to help migrants on the Mexico side of the wall. But if Sassabi is any indication, when things heat up with the cartels, they run. So it's, it's in an area that's largely cartel controlled. It's, it's been very challenging. And I think if it weren't for humanitarian groups uh, on both sides of the border, 
we would have an even greater crisis than we're seeing. So it's true that communities on both sides of the border are, are feeling the, the pain right now, doing everything they can to help. But, you know, we need more help from the government. Um, my preference would be to see stop wasting money on building a medieval barrier and let's start channeling the money into resources to help non-government groups and our communities, you know, cope with this crisis. It's the right thing to do. Laura, you've certainly given us your personal observation of what's going on down there at the border, and I very much appreciate that. And before we started recording, you invited Steve and I to come help out at some point. So we'll certainly think about that. We would love that. And anyone who's interested, again, in in donating and volunteering, if any of this resonates with you, uh, again, we are a small organization. We are funded through donations. Uh, We work hand in hand with with other humanitarian groups. And we put your donations to great use. So uh, we could certainly use the help now if it If you can come and be a regular volunteer or drive a water truck or help us with office work, answering email, social media, uh, we would welcome it all. Just uh, go to humaneborders.org and you can also follow us both on Facebook and Instagram on uh, for just search Humane Borders Arizona. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate your time. Yes, and thank you for your interest. It, we appreciate what you do, what you yes. and your team do. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a calling and something that we're all very passionate about. And I can't fix everything that's wrong with the world, but I feel like if every day I can be out there to help someone in need or put water out that might save someone's life, that we're making a difference. Absolutely, you are. Okay, thank you, Lauren. Keep doing the good work. All right. Thank you so much to both of you, and, and you take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Broadcasting from the Mesquite Works Steam Center in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Artbox sponsors thank you for listening. You can find us on Spotify and Amazon Music. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We welcome all comments. You can email us at artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Mesquite.